If you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be reading the second half of the chapter from 11 through to the end. If you're using uh, an ESV copy, it all is on page 976. So I invite you to turn there. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by in, the hand, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were one, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want you to take a second and look around at who is around you. Just take a look around. Look at all the people who are here in this room. What an interesting group. And you know, the only reason we're here is because of Jesus Christ. Have you thought about that? That's the only reason. And yet, look how strange we are, how different we are. One pastor who was uh, going through this passage posed this excellent question to his congregation. Christians in Ephesus who were of so many different backgrounds, nationalities, educational levels, and economic strata, must have questioned this call to unity. How could they, and we in a culture no less mixed, all pull together? Now that's at the heart of the passage today. How is that possible? And the answer is Christ. Christ is our peace. Now, we're going to look at that in a few different ways because sometimes we think of this as the diversity, as the elements being addressed, but our Christ actually transcends that and he looks at the spiritual diversity that we have here. This passage is all about Jews and Gentiles, and guess what? Unless you're a Jew, you're a Gentile. <laughs> Never thought of that before, huh? Right? Congratulations, all you wicked Gentiles. But let's look, because Christ has changed that. Three different ways we're going to look at the passage. First is 11 and 12, at one time. And then in 13 through 17, but now. And in 18 through 22, for 
through Christ and in Christ. Now, for those of you who have not been following this series in Ephesians, uh, the reason that it may suddenly be strange is because you may not have been coming to the evening services. Uh, I was challenged a while back by someone in the congregation saying, I've never heard a series in Ephesians preached at 10th. I thought, well, that's ridiculous. We should have that. So a number of months ago, I started doing that in the evening service. Well, we haven't gotten very far. In fact, we've only gotten past three sentences. (laughs) Three sentences in the Greek. So if you actually look in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 in our English Bibles is one verse, or excuse me, one sentence. In it, we discover our God's will his resolve that we should appear before him holy and blameless. Obviously, it's not something we can achieve by our own efforts. No, we are dependent upon our God and what our God has established in us through the work of Christ Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Now, the second sentence is actually really interesting because instead of just merely building on that Paul takes a break and he suddenly has a prayer. And that's in verses 15 through 23. It's an amazing prayer asking that this God may reveal himself to us intimately in all of his majesty, glory, and mercy so as to accomplish God's resolve, which will culminate in a unified kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. Now at the beginning of chapter two, the third verse, the third sentence, he describes our desperate situation of being spiritually dead and in need of divine intervention through sovereign grace, whereby we are made alive with, raised up with, and seated with Christ, concluding with the statement, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And now we come to this part, this part where Paul points to Christ as our peace, unifying this spiritually diverse humanity to one another and reconciled to God. So, at one time. Now, before we speak about peace, Paul painfully points out the spiritual chasm between Jews and Gentiles, those born under the covenants and with those privileges and those rest of us who are not. First, they, we, were a people separate, separated from Christ, that is, the Messiah. Now, in the Greek, Christ is the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one. It was the promised person. The promised person that God said would come to rescue us from our sin. It was only known to the Jewish nation. He was set apart for the Jewish nation. Unlike the Jews, the Gentiles had not even a chance to know Christ. Our religion was totally pagan. We did not have the expectation of a savior. Secondly, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were not part of the theocracy, the Old Testament constitution, under which God made himself known to the Jews and entered into a relationship with them. Ruth, in the Old Testament, makes a fascinating statement. You remember at that time when she had the opportunity of separating from Naomi and returning to her home country, said no. 
She says in, in Ruth 1.16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Dr. Boyce makes an astute comment. These are beautiful words, but the beauty has kept many from noticing the far more important ordering of thoughts. Ruth wanted to join Naomi in the true worship of Jehovah, but notice she couldn't say your God will be my God until first she had said your people will be my people. In her statement, Ruth confessed her need for a change in nationality before there could be a change in her God. Third, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, the place of safety and blessing. The covenants of promise were not only the basis of Israel's relationship to God, but also the social glue that united neighbors, worshiping communities, and families. For Abraham, for Abram, leaving his father, leaving his people, and journeying to a distant land promised to him by a God who couldn't be seen was an unconscionable thought for anyone from the Middle East. How could you abandon everything that gives you identity? And that was the point. Because God was calling Abram to a new identity, to a new truth. And what's interesting is, in the book of Hebrews, we are said that he did this by faith. He trusted that God was going to lead him to a brand new place, to a new identity, to a new society. And what it says in Hebrews eleven sixteen, those who lived by faith desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Fourth, we had no hope. Ignorant of divine salvation and of Christ in whom it was found, we had nothing to hope for beyond this world. I don't know how many of you have had to work through that. You didn't grow up in the church. You may not have been just thinking that you always had a hope, but rather you had to go through the painful struggle of working through how do you even pursue a hope in this world? How do you get beyond the idea of the success syndrome? How do you find some type of validity or significance in your own life? How do you have hope just to wake up tomorrow? As one commentator noted, apart from revelation, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one can have any true hope of anything beyond this life, but must say, as Satan does in John Milton's great epic, Paradise Lost, our final hope is flat despair. Finally, we were without God in the world. Without the knowledge of the one true and living God, and thus destitute of any God, the domain of our lives was this present evil world, and in it, alienation from God. We had no God. Now, it's interesting as as we just kind of reflect on that, to realize that even Jesus said the exact same thing about the advantage that Jews have over Gentiles. Do you remember when he met the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 22, he said to her, salvation is from 
the Jews. He made it very clear that because God had set aside this nation, it wasn't a privilege, but rather to a responsibility. He didn't say these are the only ones, but rather he said, these are the ones I've revealed myself to, and they should be sharing this with others. Come and join us, just like Ruth did. Come join our numbers and worship our God. Become one of those that God has set aside as his chosen people. However, over the years, this ideal led many in God's chosen nation of Israel to adopt an attitude of favoritism and elitism rather than the special privilege to be able to please God, keep his law, and be a witness to other nations. An immense contempt bred a superior haughtiness derived from logic, simple logic, really. Let me outline it for you. We were chosen by God. God told us, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Exodus 6, 7. You are not chosen and therefore are accursed and destined for destruction without hope of even having a promised land set aside for you. We are God's chosen people. Now, forgive my sarcasm. I wanted to do that just so you got it in full volume. I wonder sometimes, though, if that same elitism doesn't sink into our souls. I know Jesus Christ, and you don't, you sinner. Ha, ha, ha. Shame on us. You see, to be an Israelite was to be a member of the society of God. It was to have a citizenship which was divine. But it's too easy to forget Too easy to be proud of our differences, too easy to embrace our prejudices, too easy to nurse our offenses. And so, the apostle says, remember these things, past, now, but now. It's interesting, that disjunctive, but now. We heard it in verse four, but God having heard how we were dead in our transgressions and sin, how we had no life in us, and only because of God we heard this gospel suddenly come. We were dead, but God. And suddenly the air crackles with excitement. Our God, God has noticed our desperate need and is doing something about it. Well, consider this right now. We are now separated. Us Gentiles are separated from anything to do with God. And now God himself, through Jesus Christ, has entered. Now what does our God do? This is what's amazing. You see, Christ, by coming as the Messiah and fulfilling the law of commandments, Christ has removed the barricade of privilege the Jews cherished, ending legalism as a principle of religions, and nullifying the law, thereby freeing the faithful in the Jewish community to embrace their Messiah. They have not failed in obedience. Rather, their Messiah has completed obedience. They now can come to him in faith. At the same time, by removing the requirement of working for salvation through obedience, and rather offering salvation as a gift of God's grace, 
Christ has removed any impediment for us as modern-day Gentiles to approach God through faith, just like the Jews. In verse 14, we read about the dividing wall of hostility, and it's no great stretch to believe that Paul was figuratively pointing to the four walls separating the various courts at the temple in Jerusalem. Ones have divided the Gentiles from the women, from the men, from the priests, with warnings for those who dared to proceed beyond their station of life. There were huge plaques that were put up on the walls. In fact, uh, a whole inscription was unearthed in 1871, and it's now in the museum in Istanbul. It reads, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankments around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. How welcoming. You know, uh, it's a little bit like the idea of trespassers will be prosecuted, only it goes a step further and says trespassers will be killed. Yes, that's, that's a nice place, place where you'd always like to go. Perhaps you remember in Acts 21, when Paul was taking some Gentiles who desired to become a part of the nation of Israel, he was actually bringing them in. And he took them beyond that barricade. And do you remember some Jews who wanted to bring accusation against Paul raised the alarm. He's bringing Gentiles into the courtyard. And literally, they were ready to lynch him. And the Roman guards had to be able to come out to remove him. For the Ephesian church who first received this letter, this illustration was poignant. They would have known about those walls. The walls separating women and Gentiles and Jews and priests are completely removed in Christ. Jew and Gentile stand together as one people in God's presence with old distinctions no longer having significance. Christ has created a new humanity, a new society, the church. That is who we are. We are the church. As we do so, we need to remember how deep this goes. Jesus Christ is our new identity. My identity is no longer fixed by my birth, determined by my heritage, or spoiled by my sin, but is renewed, transformed, and reborn by my Savior's blood. Yes, I have a racial identification, but more than that, I am a Christian. Yes, I have a family name, but more than that, I am a Christian. Yes, I have failed to be all that my God requires, but I am not my sin. I am a Christian, washed in the blood of Christ and filled with its life through the grace of my Savior alone. Now, there have been people who have twisted this idea They have decided to try to put an adjective in front of the name Christian. But that is such a misnomer. That is not embracing the identity that we have in Christ. There is no adjective that we need to put in front of it. It is all-encompassing. For it talks about how we are now new in Christ. He has made us a new society as the church. Back 
when I was much younger, there was a move to try in the church to do this in a twisted manner. They would use this passage of scripture to talk about the social gospel, how Christ has removed racial barriers. He's moved any type of barriers that would do that. But no, we need to understand that this is the spiritual removal of barriers that our Christ has made. That's much more freeing. And also it's more truthful to what the gospel is. This gospel of peace is not a social gospel. It is spiritual freedom for life because it identifies us completely. Our whole being is now in Christ. It is his peace that defines us. I don't know if you've ever worked through the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Sometimes we don't fully understand, but let me just read a couple of the definitions that are given. It's completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. It is the unimpaired relationship with others, and its source is God. Relational peace. It's not the absence of war. It's a relationship that brings peace. And peace, rather than alienation, is quite amazing. Rita Snowden, an English missionary and author, tells a story from the Second World War. In France, some soldiers with their sergeant brought the body of a dead comrade to a French cemetery to have him buried. The priest told them gently that he was bound to ask if their comrade had been a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. They said that they didn't know. The priest said that he was very sorry, but in that case, he could not permit burial in his churchyard. So the soldiers took their comrade, sadly, and buried him just outside the fence. The next day, they came back to see that the grave was all right, and to their astonishment, they couldn't find it. Search as they might, they could find no trace of the freshly dug soil. As they were about to leave in bewilderment, the priest came up. He told them that his heart had been troubled because of his refusal to allow their dead comrade to be buried in the churchyard. So early in the morning, he had risen from his bed and with his own hands had moved the fence to include the body of the soldier who had died in France. The barrier has been moved, dear brothers and sister Gentiles, now redeemed in Christ. Christ has moved the barrier. In fact, he's obliterated it. And that gets us to our third point, through Christ and in Christ. You know, in verses 18 through 22, Paul now gives a litany of the benefits of being in Christ. And he does, he finishes up with this wonderful illustration that kind of straddles between foundational and organic, the organic nature of the church. Let me just read them off. Solid foundation on the apostles and the prophets. Verse 20. Sure cornerstone in Christ who holds the reference point for the building. Verse 20. Secure household and a source of pride for us as servants of the living God. Verse 19. Secure citizenship. Verse 19. But I think the greatest of all is that we are a dwelling place for God. Verse 22. This is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for tabernacle. It's not just a place to stop by. It's not a hotel. It's not a motel. It's not a place you stay for one or two nights and then move on. This is a permanent dwelling place. Our God 
permanently dwells by his spirit in his church. What's interesting is, let me pick up and quote 2 Corinthians 6.16. The reason why this is so interesting is, remember that logic that I told you about that Jews had for excluding or separating themselves for ungodly Gentiles? They quoted Exodus 6, uh, verse 7. Let me read you Paul quoting that verse again in a different context. Paul says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Redemption. When I was very young, my parents took me to the church of Ottery St. Mary in Devon, England. First mentioned in 1242, The church was formally consecrated in 1260, although the list of vicars dates back to 1154. Today, some Harry Potter fans may know it as Ottery St. Catchpole. They've used the same idea. It is a beautiful sanctuary. Its unique architecture just captivates the attention. The complex arches elegantly crisscross, culminating in a vaulted, vaulted, fan ceiling capped with bosses. This medieval church is claimed to be, quote, the finest in any non-cathedral church in England, unquote. With its beautiful hand-carved church pews and eagle, eagle lectern dating back to the medieval, I was overwhelmed by the history of the building. And that's when it happened. My mother leaned over and quietly whispered in my ear, our Lord has been faithfully worshipped weekly in this church for over 700 years. You see, that's the point. It's not the building, it's the people. It's those who worship and join to worship our God. You see, if we could really understand verse 22, then we would be amazed Our God has taken us from being Gentiles outside of the promises and the covenant to be not only his people, but also to be his dwelling place where he gives us his spirit that we may be a whole new society. Okay, so what can we learn from this passage? Let me be... Let me end in the same place that we start. Look around you. Look around you. Not only look who you're sitting beside. Look who's across the aisle from you. Look who's up in the balconies. Look who's under the balconies. In the amen pews. Look all around. Consider how unique this is. We're not just a group who have similar interests. We're not just an organization with similar goals. We are a spiritual family united by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If that sounds familiar, you only have to go over to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 to realize Paul wrote that just a little later based on what we are studying today. Our identity 
is in Christ. Hallelujah. Okay, second. Look around you again. We are a chosen race. Yes, we. Now, the new we. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for our God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light and truth. 1 Peter 2.9. We're not confined to a specific locale. Think about that. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to praise our God. We can do so here. We can do so here when we gather together. Whether it be here in this room or whether it be in someone's backyard, someone's living room, apartment, park, we have the freedom. Because we are in Christ, we may worship everywhere and at all times. Third, you ready? Look around again. But I want you to look a little further than just the people who are in this room. This peace is amazing. But the other thing that we've been taught is no one is beyond the pale of the gospel. Everyone needs this gospel. Every single person is a potential worshiper of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, how are people going to get to know about this? I'll let you figure that out on your own. We have so much to do. By God's grace, we will accomplish. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our identity being in you. Now, mobilize us that we may move out and share this gospel of peace with others. For it is in and through the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.